When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. You're listening to Seeing and Believing, a film and television podcast that searches for the sacred on screen. I'm Kevin McLenathan. And I'm Sarah Welch Larson. Sarah, riddle me this. What has it got in its pocketses? String, or nothing. I see that we are well up to date on our Lord of the Rings riddles, but that is not going to help us this week, not even a little bit. We are going to be talking about a different kind of riddler in this week's episode. We're going to be visiting the Rain Street streets of Gotham City to talk about Matt Reeves' new take on The Batman. And then we will take, for our watch list segment, we will be taking a trip to Shanghai, where we will be watching Kathy Yen's debut movie, Dead Pigs. Quite a title. Hopefully we've got quite the conversation to go along with it on this episode, episode 323 of Seeing and Believing. Yes, we're here on episode 323 of Seeing and Believing. And, you know, I feel like with this movie, Sarah, we're, we're kind of officially moving out of the doldrums at the beginning of the year and we're, we're fully in sort of the ramping up to summer blockbuster season. Summer keeps coming earlier and earlier, which, I mean, is news to me given how cold outside it is. But at the same time, I'm, I'm here for a popcorn movie. Yeah, it's good to, to, to get a popcorn movie in here, you know, when, when it's sort of... The weather's trying to make up its mind whether it wants to be, you know, spring or winter, and it's a good time to spend some time in the dank alleys of Gotham City and just watch somebody in a in a bat costume beat up a, a bunch of criminals. You know, it's 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 the reason for the season. It's the only time I'd ever want to hang out in a dank alley personally. But I mean. <laughs> <laughs> hey, you know what? Different strokes for different folks, listeners. We are going to be talking about the Batman here in this first segment. Uh, we are going to also be talking about Sarah's watchlist pick Dead Pigs in the second segment, which is a very different movie from a caped crusader thriller, but that's going to be coming up here in a sec. For now, we'll turn our attention to the movie that's probably going to be sucking up all the oxygen in the room come this Friday uh, as it hits theaters everywhere. Here's the film's official synopsis. Two years of stalking the streets as the Batman, striking fear into the hearts of criminals, has led Bruce Wayne deep into the shadows of Gotham City. With only a few trusted allies among the city's corrupt network of officials, cops, and high-profile figures, the lone vigilante has established himself as the sole embodiment of vengeance amongst his fellow citizens. When a killer starts targeting Gotham's elite with a series of sadistic killings, though, a trail of cryptic clues sends the world's greatest detective on an investigation into the underworld, where he encounters such characters as Selena Kyle, a.k.a. Catwoman, Oswald Cobblepot, a.k.a. The Penguin, Carmine Falcone, and The Riddler, played by Paul Dano. As the evidence begins to lead closer to home and the scale of the perpetrator's plans becomes clear, Batman must forge new relationships, unmask the culprit, and 
in the grand tradition of pretty much any Batman movie, bring justice to the abuse of power and corruption that has long played Gotham City. So, you know, I did say, you know, bringing justice, that's kind of, you know, Batman is all about that. But Matt Reeves's take on the iconic hero, Sarah, is, you know, every director that comes along has to kind of put their own stamp on the character and kind of let audiences know, you know, what is it about this character that we've seen on screen umpteen times? What is different about this iteration here before us? So maybe to get us started off, we can kind of start talking about that. What did you think about Matt Reeves's take on the Cape Crusader? I dug it. Um, I feel like most Batman, Batsman are trying to... <laughs> Batman? Yeah. Uh, man bats. I, I'm not entirely sure what the, what the proper plural is. Um, I feel like most of them uh, try to distinguish themselves through like a slightly different look or a slightly different attitude. And this one, we can get into the production design um, in a bit. This one looks very distinct, but it's not a form of distinctness that I think can be summed up in a single word like it doesn't kind of it doesn't really feel like the um art deco look of like a Tim Burton Batman um it looks a little bit more elaborate and sort of grand I suppose um but the thing that sets this Batman apart I think from all of the other Batman is that this Batman is tired and I really Mm. like that like there's a very strong sense of weariness in Robert Pattinson's portrayal in the way that he talks in the way that he approaches his work he's just kind of like like grabbing a backpack and slinging it over his shoulder and like going out and searching amongst the alleyways and then taking notes at the end of the night so that he can remember because he says that he he can't always remember everything that's going on. And I really appreciated that sense of, I think, almost um, embodiment and then the sort of weariness that implies that he's been doing this for a long time and he's not really sure where to go from here. So um, we saw this movie together mm-hmm. um, at a critic screening. And after the movie was over, you turned to me and said you weren't sure if this was the best Batman, but it was the most Batman. So I'm curious to know uh, after some thought whether you still feel that yeah. way. So I feel like the um, it's pretty common in Batman movies of all stripes to really emphasize uh, you know, how Batman's kind of carrying the weight of the whole city on his shoulders. Mm-hmm. Uh, of course, it emphasizes the fact that Batman, you know, punches people and has gadgets. Those are all kind of constants, I feel like. Um, and which is which is fine. Th- those, those can be uh, entertaining to greater or lesser degrees. But I think where this take sets itself apart is that it includes dimensions of the Batman mythos, I guess, if you will, that some of the other ones tend to kind of leave behind. And I'm thinking yeah. mostly of the the world's greatest detective aspect of Batman. That was the part of this version that I think was most gratifying to see, where Batman, we see, we get a lot of him just kind of visiting a crime scene, trying to figure stuff out, taking mm-hmm. notes. Yeah. I don't know if we've ever really seen that in, <laughs> no. in a Batman movie before. And I, you know, it's nice to see um, actual crime solving come into play for for this Batman as opposed to just crime punching. Yeah, yeah. It's it's smart, uh, too, about how smart the movie allows Batman himself to be. Like, he collects a lot of clues. He's sifting through a lot of evidence. Like, he takes a lot of time, like, with a flashlight just going over surfaces and, like, picking up objects and trying to figure out, like, what evidence is important and what isn't. But I also appreciate that what makes him a good detective is that he's good at putting together 
details that other people have also noticed. Yeah, kind so of like a, a Sherlock Holmes deal. Yeah, but he doesn't always necessarily know immediately what's going on. Like sometimes he needs a nudge from somebody else or somebody else will say something and then he's able to put the pieces together. So I appreciate that like he's a very, very good detective, but he's also very human at the same time. Yeah, and uh, the scenes that we get, like you mentioned, where he, you know, he's not always in the suit when he's out, you know, pounding the pavement, stopping crime. Like sometimes he's just wearing a hoodie and he jumps on a motorcycle and he just kind of goes off to to figure something out. It's not as much like the the costume is not not optional, I want to say, but it's it's definitely it's only one of his tools, I mm-hmm. guess. And I think that mm-hmm. that's part of this version of Batman as well. It's kind of a focus on he he's less one note, I guess. There's a lot going on with this Batman. And, and when I say that, I'm not sure it's the best Batman, it's the most Batman. That's both a compliment and a little bit of a criticism because there is a lot in this movie. And I think it maybe bites off a little bit more than it can chew, mm-hmm. um, which is, you know, it's not necessarily the worst thing in the world to be, to get a lot of a good thing. But I do think... Matt Reeves does lose the thread a little bit, or maybe he doesn't lose the thread, but he uh, definitely hasn't quite mastered in this film uh, how to make everything of equal interest. There are definitely parts of this movie that reach real big highs, and then there are other parts of the movie that just kind of go for a while until we get to the good stuff again, or at least that's what I thought. It's funny you say that because I was thinking to myself that it did feel a little bit overlong, but like looking back over everything that happens, um, I'm not sure what I would necessarily cut. Like I appreciate that we're allowed to spend a lot of time in this version of Gotham. Um, I kind of liked that the action escalates very, very slowly until it suddenly like hits a fever pitch. Um, You don't really notice when things are starting to get really bad until after they've started to get really bad. Um, And then you realize like, oh, um, this guy's in trouble and he's kind of out of his depth um, and he may not necessarily make it out alive. Um, And that's one of the other things that I liked about Robert Pattinson's portrayal of Batman too, is that he's allowed to be afraid. Like there's this great shot where he's running from somebody, he gets to the top of a building and you can see the full fear on his face before he makes his escape. Um, And it kind of felt like he was experiencing a lot of that fear throughout the entire runtime. He was just better at hiding it at certain points. Like, the costume is armor, like actual armor, and then it's also armor to keep the criminals from realizing just how scared he is in that situation as well. I, you know, I really, I, I would probably have to see this movie again before I feel fully confident in saying this, but I feel halfway confident at least saying that Robert Pattinson might give the best performance inside the suit mm-hmm. of of any Batman, and a lot of it is down to the fact that both Pattinson and Matt Reeves' camera takes the time to sort of allow Batman's feelings or uh, fears to to really become clear to the audience. Like, it's a a very legible costume, I guess, that he's wearing. Mm -hmm. Um, And by that, I mean that it's not so elaborate and so concealing that you can't really see... You know, the the fact that, you know, there, there's maybe a slight hitch in his step when he picks himself up after taking a shotgun blast to the chest. Yeah. You you uh, get a chance to really read his expression when he's standing on the edge of a building or when he's uh, seeing something surprising. You mm-hmm. know, th- this Batman 
is surprised. And that that's kind of nice to have a, a Batman who's not sort of the the almost omniscient uh, superhero where nothing really surprises him. If 10 guys come at him, he just kind of beats them all up and that's he doesn't really feel any any pause about that. And this one, you know, um, he does beat up many groups of people <laughs> all at once, but it's not, it's not something he just sort of takes in stride. It's something that he has to think about and uh, he takes a couple of licks and he seems to feel them. Mm-hmm. And I, I appreciate that, that Reeves in the way that he, he uses his camera and the way that uh, he and his editor make their editing choices. They, they let the audience in on that as well. And I think that lends some stakes to the, some of the action sequences. Yeah, I agree. Um, and Robert Pattinson is a terrific physical actor. He also looks hulking and imposing in a way that I would not have ever expected him to be. And I think a lot of that is to, to, down to the lighting, just the yeah. way he's lit. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and also um, probably a sense of scale as well. Like whenever he's up against Zoe Kravitz, you realize just how small she is in comparison to him, especially when he's when he's in the costuming. But yeah, yeah, I appreciate that this version of Batman can take a punch, but it takes him a minute to like recover from it. Um, and the fight choreography I thought was quite good too. I wish I could have seen a little bit more like full bodies in motion. Like you get quite a bit of that. I never personally felt lost in any of the fight scenes. I just wish I could have seen more of them at any given time. You know, for as many Batman movies as we've as we've gotten, there are precious few Batman movies where it feels like the action is fully satisfying. Mm-hmm. I, I you know, I like the Christopher Nolan Batman movies pretty good. I you know, I like The Dark Knight. Um I just I think it's it's probably still the best overall Batman movie in, in my personal pantheon. But one thing that I can't really defend them on is I don't think Christopher Nolan's all that great as a as an action director. No. And uh, I think this movie, the, the fight choreography and the way that Matt Reeves shoots it, while it may not be up there with some of the best action cinema I've ever seen, I do think that it's legible and visually dynamic in a way that other Batman movies haven't really been. That that was gratifying to see as well. Yeah, and at the same time, a lot of the violence is really implied. Like, a lot of it takes place off screen. There's a lot of pretty horrible things that happen to people. Like, when the Riddler catches you, you know something almost like... It, it almost felt like it was on a saw level of just, like horror that was going Mm -hmm. on there um you don't really see much of it it's just it's more implied and that sort of makes it a little bit more horrible but i think there was some there was something missing to make the film actually scary i don't know like the dark knight i feel some of that action very viscerally and there was some element and i can't quite put my finger on it where it felt like it was missing from this one yeah i think um yeah, comparing it to The Dark Knight specifically, I think a lot of that has to do with um, the the way that Reeves uses shallow focus in this a lot. It, it yes. feels it feels it's obviously it feels to me like a choice that was born both of you know as an intentional aesthetic choice, but also you know it's a PG thirteen movie and yeah. you, you can't you know get too too graphic here. And I think because it does feel aestheticized in a way that um, for example, Nolan's movies don't in the way they portray, say, the Joker. Mm-hmm. I, I think that maybe calls attention to the pulled punches a little bit more than a more straightforward aesthetic would. Mm-hmm. Um, and also the fact that it's much more self-consciously going for 
a horror vibe. I mean, watching this, what I thought about most was uh, David Fincher's Seven, both mm. in the way that the Riddler is characterized and in just the the cinematography kind of calls to mind that that kind of that grimy, underlit world that Fincher portrays in in that film. Um, it, it feels like Matt Reeves was either intentionally or unintentionally um, making visual references to to Seven throughout this film. Yeah, I, it's funny you say that because I think there were a lot of references to a lot of other like underworld, like dark underworld type movies. But the one I picked up on the most was actually Eyes Wide Shut. Um, that might be a, a future watch list pick because I've not seen that. Oh, yet, so okay, okay. Well, there's there's a put scene. Put a pin in that one. <laughs> we will put a pin in that one. There's a scene where Tom Cruise learns some dark truths uh, while in conversation with somebody else who is playing pool, and the same thing happens at one point in this movie where Bruce Wayne learns some dark truths from somebody who is also playing pool. The two shots kind of felt like they were mirroring those. The two scenes felt like they were kind of mirroring each other in a way um, that felt very intentional to me. So we'll, we will definitely have to put a pin in that because I'll be <laughs> curious to know what you think about that once you have seen Eyes Wide Shut. Let's talk a little bit about kind of the um, the thematic thrust of this film because uh, I, you know, like I said before, I do think that um, this movie Matt Reeves sets himself a big job. And I know that this is based on a comic. Uh, I think it's the the Long Halloween is the story that this is kind of based on. And I can't, not having read it myself, I can't speak to how faithful it is or, or how closely Reeves attempts to adapt it. But there are definitely a lot, there, there's a lot going on here in terms of the themes of, you know, class, of uh, what the obligations of somebody from an upper classes to somebody from the lower classes and also just the way that um power and corruption tend to to reify each other and really uh inform one another i'm kind of curious to get your thoughts on uh how effective the film is in evoking those it's funny because i think this one's probably the most class conscious out of all of the batman um, like Bruce Wayne very clearly is like a millionaire playboy and that's fun for him, I suppose, and most of the other versions of this. And like he isn't really that in this one. He's he's, he's so emo. Like <laughs> yeah. I, I, I thought of the crow a lot while while watching this. Just the the nirvana on the soundtrack and the the you know, the eyeshadow and just He's a very mopey Bruce Wayne. Not Blind much of a playboy here. for me. So add that one to the watch list on my end, I think, because I have a feeling I'll dig that movie. Um I appreciated how smart this movie was about the power of individual choice versus institutional corruption. Um, because there's there's kind of a, a conspiracy going on throughout the throughout the movie um, to hide somebody's past crime um, and cover it up. And a lot of the detective work that um, Batman slash Bruce Wayne does in order to solve it is him trying to get to the bottom of like, well, who's hiding what, who's the rat essentially. Like it also felt like very much like a Michael Mann movie in a way as well. Like a lot of very competent Hmm. people like doing crimes or trying to solve crimes. Um, And I appreciated that there is an element of, of personal choice. I think that everybody has, but then there's also the movie is very conscious of the pressure that one can be that one could feel 
if they are being asked to uphold something that is not necessarily right because quite often like inertia is the best way to uphold that like you just go along with the flow you don't say anything you keep your head down um and you don't challenge whoever it is that's in power because that's the easy thing to do and that's kind of how um that sort of sin perpetuates itself i think um and at the same time like there is also there there is also the opportunity to bring that injustice to light and then multiple people have to have to try to like fix that in order to to root out the problem because if just one person confesses then you're still going to be dealing with that institutional problem that's going on like under the surface you really have to to uncover all of it and then find a way to institutionally make it right as well if that makes any sense yeah you know listening to you talk about it i i feel like the your articulation of those themes is way more compelling than the films (laughs) so you know one of the things that that reeves does uh with this pictures uh he kind of puts the waynes under the microscope you know like how mm-hmm. how is uh bruce wayne and his parents before him how is he using uh his wealth and his privilege to actually make the world a better place rather than simply uh try to assuage his own demons mm-hmm. um and that's fine as far as it goes i don't know that it's all that compelling in the form that we actually get it mm. I don't give Todd Phillips Joker credit for much, but one thing that I think that that film does do well is the way it, it makes the Waynes kind of, it, it, it makes the audience feel just how remote the Waynes are, just how they're almost on a different planet from everyone else. And that's something that I feel like this film also deals with, but it's kind of just mostly dialogue. Like people tell, tell Bruce Wayne at various points, like your parents were very rich. They were very uh, privileged and so forth, but you don't really get the sense that you, there, there's not really as much of a contrast placed between Bruce Wayne, the person and the rest of Gotham. It's mostly mm-hmm. just people tell him that a lot, which is fine, but I feel like it was a missed opportunity to really, bring that home in a way where it felt like the twist had, where where certain twists had weight rather than kind of just treading familiar territory in a not particularly compelling way. Yeah, it did feel a little bit confused with Bruce's own personal journey as the Batman as well, like starting off with questioning, like, am I even doing any good here? Like, explicitly states in his opening monologue like I'm not even sure if I'm making much of a difference at this point so when you have that personal journey of am I making a difference like how can I make a difference as the Batman or in some other capacity versus the um, tension between the city um, versus the tension in the city between the upper class and the lower class where people are complaining about how like a, a social safety net isn't really worth much if it doesn't catch anything anybody like yeah i agree with you there like there's a little bit of muddling i think yeah or, or yeah maybe not even muddling so much as just missed opportunities i feel like to really explore the power of individual choice versus institutional corruption uh jeffrey writes uh, jim gordon is seems like a very obvious vehicle to do that and i feel like 
there's a lot left on the table in terms of of his character and what he brings to the movie. Uh, Reeves kind of employs him more or less as Batman's sidekick in this film. And, you know, he's, I, I like Jeffrey Wright a lot. I think he gives a good performance here. I don't think that thematically the character is maybe used to his fullest potential. Yeah, there's a great scene where he sort of confronts Batman while a bunch of other people are watching him that I really appreciated. But he just sort of drops out of the movie after that. Um, which I found kind of disappointing. Yeah, and again, I feel like that's kind of the way this movie feels to me is is not so much that there's anything anything bad with it, and I had a, a good time with it, and I'd re- probably recommend that our listeners go see it, but it does feel like there's even more it could have done. There was... There's ways that it could have played with the the audience's natural impulse to sympathize and valorize Batman, mm-hmm. um, and and the tensions that that would produce uh, between you know the superhero genre and sort of what the movie is telling us thematically about wealth and privilege and individual responsibility. And how that all plays into the Riddler's scheme. There, there's there's some elements there that feel like they're in the mix somewhere, but they're they end up being half baked, at least in my opinion. Yeah, yeah, I agree. I did feel like the Riddler was a pretty effective villain, at least for for my experience with it. Um, mostly just just because he really creeped me out. So, um, did Paul Dano's performance do anything for you? I think Paul Dano is. He's extremely well, it's great casting, 100% great casting. I'm not sure about his performance, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. I I feel like he's got the right presence, and uh, I feel like his, the way he uses his voice is interesting, but... And I don't know if this is a uh, an actor, uh, uh, an issue with the acting or an issue with the directing, but it does kind of feel like he, they're pushing this Riddler to be really psychotic hmm. in in the same vein of of Heath Ledger's Joker. And you know whether or not it's fair, it feels like that performance just towers over so much of modern Batman in terms of the way it almost defines the Dark Knight that a lot of movies kind of try to chase that a little bit. And I'm not sure that this movie needs it. And I don't even really know that Paul Dano is is really up to the task of doing that level of of um, disturbing character work that, that Heath Ledger was. It's funny you shades say that. I feel like Paul Dano's Riddler feels more like a real human being than Heath Ledger's Joker does, though, is the thing. Like, his version of the Joker feels more like an archetype to me, whereas, like, I don't know, I've I've met a couple of Riddlers in my, in my time, and that might be why he freaks me out so much, is that, like, he feels like one or two people that I've met before. Yeah, I don't, I don't know. That's on the page. I just don't... I, I feel like Dano overplays the the mental disturbances of the character a, a bit too much i feel like mm. this this version of the riddler um he's you know in the grand tradition of the character you know he thinks he's he's the smartest person in the room at all times he um has a, uh an army of kind of disaffective disaffected nerds basically like they're yeah. they're they, part of the riddler costume are these you know big chunky glasses and that's obviously very intentional and that's uh, Reeves is kind of attempting to say something about disaffected people finding each other through social media and building 
movements for evil, I guess, yeah. in that way. Um, and I think that had the movie stuck with that and had Dano's performance kind of stuck more with that side of the character, it would have been more effective. But when he shades into more overtly psychotic uh, moments in his performance, I think that's where he lost me a little bit more. I mean, so uh, this is something that I actually picked up on. In, there, there's a late confrontation between Batman and the Riddler uh, in an interrogation room mm-hmm. that, at least to me, seems like it was very intentionally echoing the the great, great final scene of uh, Akira Kurosawa's High and Low, where the main character of that film confronts the criminal who's been bedeviling him for the entire picture. And uh, the, just the, the shot framings, the way that Paul Dano's characters, you know, wearing those those big chunky glasses and the way the light is reflecting off of the lenses, mm-hmm. felt like it was, it, it feels like Reeves was really trying to make like, this is, this is a guy you may have met. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's just maybe taken a little bit too far. I feel like it would have been enough to leave it there, but they, the performance gets ramped up to such a degree that I think it, it loses the thread and it becomes something a little bit less specific and distinctive. That makes sense. It does kind of like devolve a little bit into histrionics, I think, towards the end. Yeah, histrionics is a good word. Yeah. Um, up until that point, though, like I appreciate what Paul Dano is doing here. Um, I appreciate that he is allowed to be like a weird little gremlin. <laughs> Freaked me out, man. <laughs> well, I mean, this is this is and I think this is probably the strongest point of the film is that this is a movie filled with weird little gremlins. This is this version of Gotham City, I f- it feels dangerous and strange in a way that I haven't gotten from literally any other Batman movie. Burton's Batman is it's very theatrical. That Gotham is is very, you know, German expressionism, that's all well-trodden territory at this point. Um but it, it's it's theatrical in a very very specific way. This one, it feels like there are lots of weird little gremlins who all kind of have their their thing that they that they go for, but it doesn't feel stylized. It feels like they're just that weird. And I, I, I liked I like that vibe. I like how the production design works uh, to to build that up, how Wayne Manor feels basically like Dracula's castle, just the the gothic architecture. I really like how how the Riddler just he he's kind of not wearing a, a, a supervillain outfit. He's not even dressed up in a distinctive way in the same way that Ledger's Joker is, where he's you know, very brightly colored and he's kind of wearing a costume. It feels like this Riddler's almost basically, he's wearing like a garbage bag. And it's yeah, just, it's just it's, some guy. It's just some, it's just some guy kind of cobbling together whatever he could find in his apartment. And that I think is just so, like you said, it's, it's just, it, there's a weirdness to it that makes it, uh, gets under your skin in a much different way than other Batman movies have. It's heightened, but only just. Like, yeah, no, Colin Farrell's in this movie. And like... <laughs> Colin Farrell? What? Yeah, he's he's in this movie. He's got a prosthetic nose on. I sure didn't recognize him. Like, I had to go and look at the credits to figure out who he was. I I mean, this this is something live on air listeners. I did not realize that Colin <laughs> Farrell was was in this movie with a, with a prosthetic nose. Yeah, he's, he's a central he's that figure. He's much of a chameleon. Yeah, he's a central figure in the movie. And I didn't even realize it was him uh, until the credits rolled. Um, they do a good job, I think, of like heightening 
the weirdness, but only just. Like, there's a lot of gothic arches, and you don't really notice, like, how many gothic arches there are unless, like, you take a good look at the city skyline. Um, there's bits and pieces that very much feel like the real world. Like, I definitely recognized a couple of downtown Chicago city streets mm-hmm. fairly early on. Um, and then I sort of lost track of them because they were just thrown together with a bunch of other, like, New York and other, probably other cities out there as well. Um And everything felt like just a little bit heightened, just a little bit weird, just a little bit strange and just a little bit run down. Um, And I appreciated that because it definitely felt like a comic book movie, but not like a comic book movie that was trying to be too much like a comic book movie. More like this is a heightened version of the world that you are living in, potentially. And it's one where, yeah, it's totally realistic for millionaires to run around in bat suits like (laughs) <laughs> beating criminals in alleyways and crashing through skylights. It's a great example of how production design and cinematography can do so much, not just to set a mood, but also just to create a world that it's possible for the the audience to access and enter into themselves imaginatively. And I think in the final analysis, you know, if even if I don't find this movie the you know among the best of the best, I really appreciate Reeves doing something distinctive in a way that I haven't seen before and letting letting the Batman mythos be be theatrical not in a not in a Burton-y uh German expressionism way but theatrical in a way like th- these are all just kind of weird people like yeah. the like the Riddler tells Batman at one point like you wearing this get up right now this is the real you the Bruce Wayne thing is that's you know that's the the costume, and that's not necessarily a new thing to be saying of Batman, but the it was Clark nice Kent to defense, yeah. right? Yeah, I mean, like it's 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 been observed about Batman before, but I think Reeves brings home the bacon in terms of the way he visually realizes it cinematically. Well, listeners, that is our review of the Batman. It is currently in wide release this weekend. Release weekend is right happening right now so if you've gotten a chance to see it definitely let us know this is going to be one of the biggest movies of the season and we're sure that a lot of you are going to check it out so uh, let us know your thoughts on it uh, you can email us at seeing and believing capc at gmail.com or head on over to the twitters and tweet us at Pod. Don't go anywhere. We're going to be talking about Kathy Yan's Dead Pigs in the second segment. That uh, music you just heard was from Michael Giacchino's uh, score for the Batman, and that's something I guess we didn't really talk about in the in the previous review. Is just um, that score and just how it. I don't know. I thought it was effective. It, it set the mood. Yeah, yeah. It really worked for me. I need to go back and like listen to it. I have a writing playlist where like I just put movie scores on there, and I think that one might end up making the rotation. Well, listeners, we, we hope you are enjoying it as well, and we hope that uh, if you like what you're hearing on the episode so far, that you would consider heading on over to our Patreon campaign and me throwing a few bucks our way. It does help us 
make sure that Jonathan keeps the lights on because he is the the secret power behind the scenes. Uh, the the Alfred to our Batman, or maybe we're the Batman to his Alfred. I'm not sure how that works exactly. He sure makes us sound smart, which I appreciate very much. <laughs> I appreciate it as well. It's 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 worth every penny. Um, but like I said, you can go over to patreon.com forward slash seeing underscore believing underscore podcast and check out ways that you can support the show. Not only do you support the show, but we can also give you a little bit of something, something back. The tiers run all the way up to $25 a month, but you only have to give as much as like $5 a month to start getting some swag headed your way. Uh, Some popular ones are the $8 a month level where you can get a personalized list of recommendations or the $10 a month level where you can force us to watch whatever movie your heart desires like a true Batman villain. I don't know which villain would actually do that, but you know, we'll, we'll, we'll table that, you know, we'll, we'll try to come up with a a good gimmick for such a person later, but someday a seeing and believing movie is going to be my Joker origin story. And (laughs) I personally am kind of excited for that. Eventually, my terrible movie opinions are going to jokerify you, and that'll that'll be the impetus for that. So, listeners, if you want to stave off that dark origin story for as long as possible, pledging to our Patreon campaign is a great way to do it. That URL, again, is patreon.com forward slash seeing underscore believing underscore podcast. So we're back with the watch list here in the second half of the show. And before we we jump into it anymore, we just have to, I feel like, take some time out, Sarah, and sit back and appreciate the title for the movie that you selected for this discussion, Dead Pigs. That's exactly what it says on the tin. You know, I, I don't know what I was expecting when when I fired up this movie. I, I was expecting something maybe a little bit more outré, perhaps, because of that. But um, I think this is a movie that uh, you, you're kind of meant to go in and just be surprised by some of the turns that it takes. So uh, maybe to be, before we actually jump into the synopsis and the review a little bit, as is our usual custom with the Watchlist segment, you're the one who picked it. So you have yep. to tell us uh, why this was uh, on your mind and why you selected it for, for me and our listeners to watch. Why did I pick a weird, obscure movie <laughs> called Dead Pigs? Um, quite a lot of connections. So one of them was I a little, a little bit of uh, production secrets here, I suppose. Um, I wanted to balance out the inevitable darkness of a Batman movie, so I decided to go for a kind of dark, but still a comedy, comedy with a lot of bright colors and, and daylight scenes. Um, Kathy Yan, who directed this movie, also ended up going on to direct another DC Comics movie, uh, Birds of Prey, or The Fantabulous Emancipation of One Harley Quinn, which is a lot of fun to say. Um, But this movie also has a big thread of um, money and the way that money sort of warps the world around it, which uh, having also now watched the Batman, I feel like kind of fits a little bit. The two are thematically like simpatico with each other, even though they kind of come to slightly different conclusions. Yeah, so this movie centers around a a family, the the Wong family, uh, a, a father, a son, and uh, an aunt who all kind of are uh, experiencing money woes or or maybe not just financial woes, but class woes in their own respective ways in the area around uh, Shanghai mm-hmm. uh, in China. And so there's 
a lot going on, and we'll get into that in a second. But um, yeah, this is a movie that I feel like, in a lot of ways, this was going to be an inevitability with uh, with the watch list segment, where uh, one of us would recommend a movie, and the other one would be like, it's okay. Okay. And I found myself kind of having that reaction to this film, where I don't, I don't know that I you know, disliked it, Mm -hmm. but I had some trouble connecting with, with it, uh, in, in a few ways. So I'm kind of curious to actually talk this out because while I was watching it, I I was just like, why is this not clicking with me? Because I do, I like the, the class commentary. I, I enjoy the performances I think are, are strong. Um, the sequences where, uh, a supporting character, a uh, an American who's over in China as an architect to try to build this this high rise residential community and finds himself w- roped into this weird, almost like quasi modeling gig by Zazie Beats. I mean, yeah. I didn't expect that to to out of this film, and I enjoyed those those moments the most. But uh, what I didn't expect was to for it to have all those moments and for me to just not really end up clicking with it the way I I wanted to so I wonder if it's a sense of humor thing maybe I don't know like this movie is a very like dry sense of humor that I personally find like hilarious so I don't know if you found it funny or if if that didn't quite work for you but I'm wondering if that might be one of those elements I I, so um for for any listeners who haven't uh you know tracked this down to to watch it in you know in anticipation of this segment this is a movie that kind of um follows a lot of different threads and at least for me it's um it it's got some comedic moments that i clicked with pretty well okay. i i think those are the strongest elements there are other moments where it is more um it, where it, it's more straightforwardly dramatic i guess okay. and me it might be the the gap between those two tones that I wasn't personally able to to bridge myself. I I found myself kind of wondering how seriously or how how sincerely I guess is this movie trying to make me feel uh, invested in uh, the the father's uh, plight with some loan sharks or mm-hmm. or failed investment. How sincerely am I supposed to be invested in the romance that the son strikes up with? A girl who is from a completely different social strata than he, stratum than than he is, and I, I don't know that the movie ever satisfactorily answered that for me. But I'm just wondering, maybe I'm just not on a wavelength that I need to be. Hmm. Hmm. Yeah, I don't know if I can. I don't know if I can fix the wavelength or anything like that. But I I feel like this movie clicks for me largely because I think it's got a very strong sense of place, kind of like Batman before it. Um, and I I don't know. I, I, I feel very plugged into the plight, particularly of uh, Candy Wong, um, who is the sister of the pig farmer who has run in with with loan sharks. So she kind of is is holding out 
she's the lone person in her neighborhood who has not sold her house to a development property. So she's just kind of sitting in the middle of a junk field in her house with the word condemned, like written on the side of it. Um, very like, I don't know, almost up sort of where there's just like a single house in the middle of what's going to become a construction site. Just saying I'm staying here. I was born and raised here and, uh, you can't make me leave. And I appreciate that level of stubbornness, I think, and that level of dedication towards, not being moved by money because this is a movie that very much hinges on who has money who doesn't have money who where money is a liability for somebody and a shield for others and i think that it is so keenly aware of like the way that rich people move through the world is going to be very different from the way that poor people move through the world and i i like seeing the movie sort of poking at that barrier a little bit um in a way that i hadn't really ever seen before which is why i'm probably so taken with this one it it finds a compelling way of highlighting the the way that um society tends to think of of con conceive of money in in a lot in lots of different ways as as a tool as a cudgel mm -hmm. as uh um as an object of desire and specifically i think uh candy wong i also found very compelling and i think the reason is that she is sort of the way she's characterized she's impervious to these various dimensions of money as a concept over and over these developers keep coming to her and they're just like you know we'll give you you know more than the house is worth you're you're going to be set for life it'll all be great you just need to let us let us give you the money the money will be good and her refusal to accept that to value something other than financial prosperity it's sort of it's not so much that she's antagonizing them it's more just uh it's a do does not compute moment they, they yeah. simply can't wrap their minds around the idea of somebody who doesn't have a price and mm -hmm. i i found that to be interesting yeah yeah she's she's a very honorable person i think in a way that a lot of the other characters in the movie probably are not because they are so swayed by like everybody else has a price tag everybody else is constantly asking like well how much do you want for something like um one character starts engaging in sort of a crash for cash type scheme mm -hmm. um, literally uh sacrificing his body and for his bicycle money. yeah, yeah. <laughs> just getting getting run into by cars over and over again and then trying to extort the drivers um and sometimes they'll say like well how much do you want so that you can like leave me alone and i don't get in trouble with the police um and then at some point that just sort of backfires for him as well and he he i think he realizes at that point that he also has had a price this entire time he just didn't realize that he was like sort of selling himself in order to get this money from other people if that makes sense it's it's an interesting twist on uh i th this is just something that occurred to me just now that when you use the phrase selling himself he's mm -hmm. he's doing what uh, essentially maybe a, a sex worker does just along a different axis rather than uh yielding up his body for the pleasures of somebody else he's sacrificing his body hmm. in a different way um at least i thought that that was i think that's an interesting way of portraying it i think where where i'm getting tangled up with this with this movie is i i don't know um if by the in the final analysis of of everything that's going on in this film if it really arrives at a particular unifying vision it's more like there there are 
various strands that are interesting of in and of themselves. Um, but it never comes to, together in a way that I feel like, for example, a Del- I was thinking of Don DeLillo a lot while, mm-hmm. while watching this film, just the way it, it has its critiques of media and of, of societal mechanisms and structures that kind of distort people into, into various shapes and, and kind of make a mockery of a lot of, 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 us, of us all essentially. But I feel like where a, a great DeLillo novel kind of, you reach the end and it feels like it's, there, there's something holding it all together. There's a center of gravity. I don't know that I've, I've found the center of gravity that I was looking for in this movie. So the sing-along number at the end doesn't work for you then? <laughs> it does not at all. It, it, it struck me as kind of, like, this is a mean thing to say, but uh, it struck me as, you know, the, the way that a lot of, uh, there was this phase where every animated family movie had to end with this big song and dance number because huh. the directors didn't really know how to end the story. So it's like, uh, everyone breaks into song, roll credits. And I felt like this felt a little bit like that to me where sort of like it didn't know how to resolve everything. So it kind of, it ended in a very intentional bit of surrealism. And I don't know, I, again, it might just be a matter of me not being on the wavelength, but did not work for me at all. Okay. Okay. So let me see if I can convince you. Um, yeah, yeah. Let's, let's, let's do it. Lay it on me. Exhibit one. Uh, Magnolia, which I know you and Wade talked about shortly before he departed. <laughs> yeah, which which I'm also not the biggest fan. Of. Fair enough, fair enough. Um, so exhibit one, we can set aside then. Um, the reason why I think this scene works for me is that it is the characters essentially stepping outside of the narrative and inviting the audience to make a personal connection with them as well. Like it's not just everybody on screen is singing. It's everybody on screen is singing and you as the audience are invited to sing along because there are literally literally characters and words like running along the bottom. Like you were invited to join these characters in their song. They're singing a very popular song um, uh, by Teresa Tang, which is from like 1980. there's a couple of different versions. There's a Japanese version. There's also a Chinese version. The Chinese version is literally called I Only Care About You. So as opposed to caring about like money or goods or anything else, like it's really just, it is it is a love song. And all of these characters are singing this love song back and forth to each other where they don't really necessarily like want to like have anything other than the person that they're trying to connect with. And so they're, they're singing it directly into the camera. They're also singing it directly to themselves. They're essentially saying like all of this brouhaha that we had about money beforehand, that doesn't matter. What actually matters is this connection between this family and then everybody else around them. And in the end, everybody gets what they want. What is, is a little bit on the nose, I think. Uh, I'm not entirely sure that that like the final coda necessarily works for me, but I do love that they're willing to break the fourth wall and they're going to say, okay, all of this stuff that we were really worried about beforehand, like maybe it doesn't actually matter. Yeah, that, that's, a, that's a good defense and I, I really appreciate it. Uh, I think you hinted at maybe why it doesn't land for me as well and it is that coda mm. where we do kind of you know they sing the song they're they're you know the karaoke lyrics are literally scrolling around along the bottom of the screen there's 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 a little like rainbow in the sky yeah. it's it's very intentionally uh you know it's not meant to be sort of like this is literally happening in the diegetic reality of the world and i appreciated that i think where the film lost me is then it kind of 
it retreats from that and we kind of go back into a happily ever after ending where uh, you know the uh, the father and his sister are are reunited. Uh, the the difficulty with the uh, finances and the house is kind of it's it's resolved or it's, or at least it's in the past and forgotten. Mm-hmm. And it, it felt to me like that was almost the the movie taking a step back from both its critique and the opportunity to unsettle the audience in 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 mm. productive ways or at least unsettle me i guess i shouldn't say the audience when i really mean me <laughs> but i i liked how that musical number unsettled me if only because i wasn't expecting it yeah and it, it was kind of nice to see that you know that cheeky cgi rainbow in the sky with the birds flying flying in front of it that was I liked how that made me reevaluate how I was approaching the story. Mm-hmm. I was disappointed that the movie itself seems to take a step back from that and give a much more conventional ending with that coda. I think that's a fair assessment. Yeah, yeah I mean, I not to not to badmouth it. I, I'm <laughs> glad that it works for you. It's just I, I just didn't quite click. I for couldn't. You. I couldn't quite feel my way to do that. And yeah. you know, I don't want to. Uh, yuck someone else's yum but you know i i think one of the fun things about these watchless segments is kind of figuring out why you know why somebody likes or doesn't like something kind of trying to talk that out a little bit yeah definitely i i feel like you and i probably have like taste that sort of rhymes a little bit so i was kind of surprised that you didn't like this one and i appreciate that very much because it's i don't know it's it's just it's interesting you, you got to you got to maintain a little bit of unpredictability in in this business here um, well, listeners, that is uh, perhaps the the unpredictable or all too predictable ending for the watch list segment this week. Sarah, I know that you you mentioned that maybe we should just break into song to to close things out, but I mean, if you want to do that, knock yourself out. I am going to refrain from inflicting my my musical stylings on the on the eardrums of of our listeners. So fair enough. <laughs> sorry about that. Um, but listeners, we are. Uh, going to close out our episode on that note. We're looking forward to next week. We've got quite, I don't know, we've got a movie that I've been looking forward to for quite a long time. We're going to be reviewing After Yang, the science fiction fable story. I'm not sure exactly what it is, and that's part of the reason why I'm excited. Um, It's directed by Kogo Nada, who directed the very, very good Columbus and on the strength of that film, I'm very interested in anything he does next. Yeah, Columbus is one of my all-time favorite movies. So I've been waiting for After Yang for, I think, a couple of years ago was when it was first announced. Mm-hmm. And I, I cannot wait to see this movie and then talk about it. Yeah, so we are, we are going to be talking about After Yang in our first segment. And then, somewhat predictably, I'm going to bring Hirokazu Koreeda's Afterlife to the watch list segment. This is a movie that just got its Criterion release, so it's streaming on the Criterion channel. You can also uh, find it on demand as well, I believe. And uh, it's a extremely, it's just, it's such a good film. And I'm excited not just to share it with you, Sarah, but also to revisit it myself because I haven't had a chance to rewatch it since the first enchanting time that I encountered it. So I'm I'm looking forward to that myself. Excellent. Looking forward to it. Listeners, that is our show for the week. Seeing and Believing is brought to you by the Christ and Pop Culture Podcast Network. Our producer is Jonathan Clausen, who every week helps us to search for the sacred on screen. I'm your host, Kevin McLenathan. My co-host is Sarah Welch-Larson, and we'll catch you next week on the show. 
You have been listening to Seeing and Believing, an official production of the Christ and Pop Culture Podcast Network. Please rate and review the show in iTunes and check out our other shows at christandpopculture.com slash network. Theme music by Alexander Osborne and Lindsay Miz, used under Creative Commons License 3.0.